You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. We are today, we're continuing in Nehemiah, we'll be in chapter 10 mostly, but we hit a little bit of 9 and 11, and I do have a, a little... Uh, handout for you here today. So um, I'm real proud of myself for doing that twice in a row. Uh, and this is for your benefit and mine. This allows you to, to capture the main points if you missed it. And it means that I don't have to say everything. So it frees me up to not go super long. You're welcome. So um, today we're going to be in uh, chapter 10 of Nehemiah. And here's where I want to start. I want to talk about repentance and revival or renewal. Uh, because today we're going to be looking at repentance in the book of Nehemiah. And what I think is interesting is when you look in history, every single revival is accompanied by a deep repentance of people. And this is one of the indications that God is moving. There's a pattern throughout the biblical history and in, uh, uh, I guess I guess you'd call it post-biblical history, I guess, uh, after the book of Acts. Um, but for example, in the United States, we had the first and second great awakenings in the 18th and 19th centuries. And there was a spirit of conviction and repentance and a movement towards holiness. And God did amazing things. Thousands of people came to faith in many ways structured the country that we uh, live in today. Let me just give you one example. This was on the heels of the second great awakening. In September of 1857, a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, a businessman and convert of one of Charles Finney's ministries, he was part of the Second Great Awakening, he began a noonday prayer meeting on Wednesday in a New York church. The small but growing numbers decided to meet daily in early October. Within six months, over 10,000 businessmen were meeting in similar meetings across America, confessing sins, being converted, and praying for revival. It was a lay-led movement that harvested a million souls in two years. In 1858, from February to June, around 50,000 people a week were added to the church in a nation whose population was only 30 million. So I just highlight to say this is one move of God in history because one man felt a conviction and the call of the Holy Spirit to start a prayer meeting, and God did the rest. Isn't that fascinating? And there's all kinds of examples of this in history. So why am I telling you this? Well, because, as I said, I think we always have the potential to experience a move of God. But always, always, there is deep repentance. And this is something that you and I can do. We can repent before God. And so as we look in the book of Nehemiah, this is what we're going to see. And we'll see this. Repentance really begins with conviction, which is what we talked about last week. It leads to confession and results in returning to God and reinvesting in his ways. So here's really the big point for today. The call for us is to reinvest in God's ways because he is the God who restores and renews. Our call is to invest in God's ways. Oh, that's a little soon there. Can you take that back down? Um, Invest in God's ways. Um... Because God, it is God who restores and renews. So let me pray for our time, and then we'll, we'll jump into this text. So Father, we thank you for the spirit of conviction. We thank you for a spirit of repentance. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work through the power of your word 
to break up our hearts, to soften them, that we might begin to experience repentance and renewal in our lives and on into this next season of life. Holy Spirit, we love you. God, we thank you that you've forgiven us through the cross of Christ, and we give you this time. We give you our hearts, and we ask you to move in power. Amen. Well, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, last week, we, uh, we read the whole, uh, uh, the whole chapter, and I think it was. Uh, thanks, Tracy, wherever you are. Great job. Um, I just want to uh, hone in on just the last couple verses, looking at uh, verse 32 and 33 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's what we read. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Because, uh, we'll skip a couple verses, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, Levites, and priests. And so I think right here, we see kind of a quintessential text in the Old Testament of what repentance is. So if we go back real quick to uh, 32 and 33 there, uh, I just want to highlight a couple sentences here. Uh, Notice what it says. He says, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us and our kings. Okay, they say, you have been righteous and all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And so in this, what do we see? There's an honest confession of who God is. God is righteous. There's an honest confession of where we are. We've acted wickedly. We've not followed God's ways. You are righteous in what has happened to us. So often when we experience pain in our life, we want to point our finger at God and say, why are you doing this to me? Sometimes it's a result of our own foolish actions. Amen? Anybody ever uh, 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 reap the consequences of what we've sown? Okay, this is the principle that works. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's very clear. You will reap what you sow. There's wisdom in that. God has set up the order to function in a certain way. If you make stupid decisions, you're going to experience the consequences of them. That doesn't mean God's not gracious. Doesn't mean God won't save you. Doesn't mean God won't rescue you from that. But there is a principle at work. And so if we know the story of of Nehemiah, right? They had been taken into exile. A remnant had come back to rebuild the wall and the temple. And this was God's mercy and grace upon them. And they're simply, after this long confession in chapter nine saying, you are right, God, you are right. We were wrong. But look at this. This is what really stuck out to me. Let not all of the hardship seem little that has come upon us. Or the New Living Translation says this, God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. And what they're doing here is calling upon God's character. Calling upon, as Stephanie said, God's faithful, steadfast love, his said. And so this, I think, is a great picture of repentance. And so with that in mind, let's just get a quick working definition of what repentance is. Wherever that, can we go back to that? Here, I'll do it. <laughs> Here we go. Couple thoughts on repentance. You've probably heard this first one. Repentance is a change of heart, leads to a change of mind, which results in changed behavior. It's important to have all three of those going on. It begins with conviction. It leads to confession, and it results in returning to God and reinvesting in his ways. 
a little bit more here, it rests on God's character. We are able to repent because of who God is, not who we are. It resides deep in our hearts and it results in action. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. So all that to say here, repentance rests on God's character. As I've just said, they are appealing to God's character. Remember our sufferings. If you remember the story of the uh, Israelites in Egypt, right? They, they, uh, they're under Pharaoh. They're being oppressed. They're crying out to God. And it just seems like God's silent. And then Moses uh, meets God on the mountain. And, and God tells Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. I am going to act on their behalf. I am going to move. And so this is God's compassion because of who God is. Now, when we look at who God is, we have to address his mercy and his justice. And these both flow out of the love of God, of who he is. They're asking for mercy. Be merciful to us. We are getting what we deserved, but we want to change. We want that change of heart and a change of mind. We're going to change our behaviors, which we'll see in a moment. So they're asking for mercy, but the problem is God is just, Right? And this is, these are really hard to hold together. God's justice and mercy. Now, when we sin and we want a God of mercy, right? When others sin against us, we often want a God of justice. So you heard me, I want justice. I hurt you, could I have some mercy, please? That's how we all act. God perfectly holds these two uh, in tension. And it's most perfectly demonstrated where? At the cross of Christ, where God's justice is upheld and his mercy is delivered because Christ who was perfect died in our place for our sins and thus we're gifted mercy on his behalf. So God is God of love and his mercy and justice flow out of this. And so this is all to say that we repent based on who God is. Let me say it a little bit more clearly. Uh, repentance is based on who God is, not who we are, but rather who we are to him. Get that last part? God offers repentance in his kindness because he loves us, because he values us, because he has affection for you. And this is often one of the hardest things for us to actually live out of, that God might actually like you and enjoy you because he created you and he wants you to be in relationship with him. And so he offers repentance through the cross that you might come to him and experience his goodness. And so it's kind of like a, a loving father. We all know the, the story of the prodigal son, right? The son comes home in his mess uh, and in his loss to, to a father that meets him with love. Now, in your own life, or if you're a parent, you know, if you were, if you were terrified of your parent or maybe your boss, you wouldn't readily come back to them with confession of guilt because you'd be afraid it's just going to get worse. They're not loving. They're going to hurt me. But if you knew that your father, your parent, or your boss was loving and kind and had your best interest in mind, you wouldn't hesitate so much to go to him and say, I messed up. This is the picture of who God is. We often view him as someone who's disappointed at us, who's tapping his foot at us, waiting for us to get it right, looking at his watch, waiting, when are we going to figure this out? That's not who God is to us. But how many of us view God as this distant, cold father that's just disappointed, shaking his head at us? That's not who God is in Christ for us. He is a loving, affectionate father that is moving towards us always. And he uses our pain 
to bring us back home to him. Because he's a God of renewal and restoration. And so this is really important as we talk about repentance, to see that it is based on who God is. It's based on his character. That's why we can repent. That's why we do repent. All right? We can't lose sight of that. Otherwise, repentance can become this kind of guilt-driven condemnation thing that I have to do as a Christian. So let's go a bit deeper. In Nehemiah 9.38, again, they say, because of all this, okay, so we're moving from the conviction part to the, uh, to the action part. It results in an action, a reinvesting in God's ways. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. Now, if you keep reading in chapter 10, verse 1 to 28, I'm not going to read all those names, but I'll tell you, there's 83 names in there. I counted them myself. 83 names are written down on this document. One governor, that's Nehemiah, 22 priests, 17 Levites, and 43 chiefs of the people. These are people who are committing and writing to following God's ways. Does anybody want to do that today? Anybody want to commit in writing again to following God's ways? There's something about that when we put our name on something, right? You sign uh, your mortgage, uh, right? There's weight to that. You're going to be held accountable to that. The word covenant here, now let me back up because covenant's a big word, it's a big theme in the Bible. God covenants with his people, he promises things to his people. The word here for covenant isn't that normal word for covenant, okay? It's actually a word that more connotates the faithfulness on the people's part. So it really is about a recommitment to God's ways because of God's covenant with us, because of God's promise to love us. And so all I'm saying is that uh, their response is to make a recommitment to God's ways. But it has to be deeper than just behavior change because God doesn't want just people obligatorily obeying him, begrudgingly doing what they're supposed to do. Is that the kind of spouse you would want? Is that the kind of friend you would want? I'm just here because I have to be. I don't really like you all that much. But I showed up at the wedding, I put the ring on, so I guess I'm here. All right? Isn't that how we treat God, though, sometimes? I'm supposed to be doing these things, so I guess here I am. Here I am at church again. Here I am preaching a sermon again. See, God wants more than that. He wants our hearts. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. This uh, was one of the first verses that ever, like, hit me in the heart as a young believer. Uh, He's talking about, Saul and David uh, being anointed as king. And he says this, for the Lord sees, not as man sees. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. See, the Lord cares about your heart. Where's your heart today? We can come here and we can have a cold, distant heart from God. We can go throughout our days and our Bible reading and our work and whatever it is and have a cold heart with God. And what we try to do in worship, I love this analogy, is we try to get closer to the bonfire of God's love so that our cold heart might start to melt. We might to experience his warmth and joy. See, God cares about our hearts. That's what he's after. And when our hearts are changed, as Jesus teaches, you'll know a tree by its fruit. When our hearts are changed, our behaviors will change. But we can't start with the fruit. We've got to start with the root, as they say. So I love this text in Joel chapter 2. 
verses 12 and 13. This is the same idea. It's kind of a same situation. You know, if you read the Old Testament, there's this pattern where God's people, they repent, they come back to God. Sooner or later, they begin to fall away and compromise again. Things get bad till the pain hits again. They turn back to God and they renew their faith. And then it just over and over and over again. And so Joel uh, chapter two is one instance of this, but listen to what he says. I think it'd be perfectly applicable to Nehemiah's time and our time. It says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me, that's repentance. Come back to me with all your what? All your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I love this. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in that steadfast love, his has said, and he relents over disaster. Rend your hearts, not your garment. How many have ever heard that before? Okay, in that day, a sign of disgust and offense and, and mourning was to literally tear your garments. I don't know if you remember in the story of Jesus, after he makes the um, confession that he's the Messiah, it says that the high priest tore his garments. It was a physical sign of, of mourning. And so listen to what God's saying. He says, don't tear your garments. Let your heart be torn. Let your heart be broken because of sin, because of pain, because of suffering. And this has to do with um, the way we've experienced sin. Maybe we've suffered because of someone else's sin. And we don't want to feel that pain, so we numb it out with all kinds of addictions. And God's saying, feel the pain. Let your heart be torn. Or maybe we need to feel the sting of how our sin has made someone else suffer. And we need to sit with that. And we need to be, feel the conviction. And we need to come to, to the Lord. That's part of Repentance. I want to lament and cry out to God. Say, save us, God. The, the, the famous uh, Psalm 51, Psalm of repentance of David after he committed all kinds of evil is such a good place to, to be. And at the end of that, he says, God, you're not pleased with sacrifices. You don't want that. What you're pleased with is a contrite and broken heart. God wants our hearts. That's the core of repentance. And so I want to take a moment with you all and I just want to pause because it's really not that important that you hear what I say. That's important. It's actually more important that you do something about it. It's more important that you read, not just hear the word of God, but you engage with it. And say, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in this moment? So I'm literally going to pause and we're going to pray for about a minute. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit if there's anything you need to be convicted of. And if you have a handout, there's a question on there. You could fill it in there, open a note on your phone, whatever it is. I'll pray for just 10 seconds, and then we're just going to sit in silence, and I want you to do some business with the Lord and open your heart to him. All right, so Sovereign Lord, reveal our hearts. You know the secrets of our hearts, our intentions, and our thoughts. Come, Holy Spirit, now and move. Father, we thank you to be a community of your people that can come to you today. So I don't know if the Lord said anything to you, but if he did, I just want to encourage you to, to talk more with him about that and to commit to do something about that. Because repentance starts with conviction. It resides in your heart. It's based on God's character, but it always results in an action. Okay? Um, I'm going to not spend a lot of time talking about this next part, just barriers to repentance. 
why we may struggle to actually repent. Um, there's a little bit on your handout. I do want to just talk about the first one here, guilt and specifically shame. I think shame is probably what keeps us from God the most. And the feeling of shame is one that says, I'm unworthy. It's one that says, I'm inadequate. I'm not included. I'm not thought of. It says, I am wrong. And so often that feeling, if we feel that, will keep us from coming to, coming to God because we don't feel worthy of his love. We don't feel worthy of his grace. And of course, there's some truth to that. Nobody is worthy of his grace. But that's why the gospel is so powerful. It says, I've covered you. And so Jesus has literally taken our shame and he has freed us and he has clothed us with his righteousness. We are in the family of God. And so what this means is God's not going to kick you out of the family. You can always come home. You can always repent. You can always talk to him. Always. That's the power of the cross. You're in the family of God. You're in the family. Everyone say, I'm in the family. Say, I'm in the family. Yeah, pretty good. It's true. There's power in our words. I'm in the family of God. He's not going to kick me out of the family. There's incredible confidence in that. Let's look down to um, repentance results in action. As we said, repentance, it begins with conviction. It leads to confession and results in returning to God and reinvesting in his ways. The rest in God's character resides in our hearts and now results in action. So what do the Israelites actually commit to? Right? Say, I'm going to commit. We're going to do this covenant. What are they saying? Let's look at verse 28, chapter 10. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding. So he's basically saying everyone, this is a community effort, not just the 83 people who signed the document, everyone who's part of the community who have separated from the lands to the law. Okay. It says this, and enter into, uh, join us with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, our Lord, sorry, the Lord our Lord, and his rules and statutes. So they're saying we are consecrating, we're sanctifying, we're setting apart ourselves, we are committing, reinvesting in the ways of God. And that day, that was the Old Testament law. Okay? So let's look at the specifics here. And what I want to do is just really give you four broad categories that they're going to cover in the next uh, 20 or so verses. And the categories are this, relationships, rest, resources, and relocation. Four R's because I'm preaching a sermon and that's what you do when you preach a sermon. Relationships, rest, resources, and relocation. So let me just um, talk through these. The first one in verse 30 says, we will not give our daughters to peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And so this is talking about marital purity, the purity of the marriage relationship. Now, in that day, it was really important for God's people to not uh, mix and mingle with people of other religions and other races. And the reason is because God in that day had set about the nation ultimately for the bringing forth of King Jesus, the Messiah. And what happens when... Um, and there's all kinds of examples in the, in the Old Testament. Solomon being, Solomon being one example who married a foreign wife and his heart was drawn away from the God of Israel and to gods of his wives, of foreign gods. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, we all are. It's possible for that to all happen to all of us, right? So in our day, maybe you're a uh, Christian and you're thinking or you're in a relationship with a non-believer. Now, there's inherent struggles with that because they may draw you away from Christ because they don't believe, they're not worshiping Jesus. And so there's wisdom in being equally yoked, as 1 Corinthians says, right? Um, so this is kind of the idea, to keep uh, uh, marriage uh, a pure, and by extension, our relationships pure. It matters how we live. And in our day, even more so, uh, going not by our definition of what marriage is or what our culture thinks marriage is, but by going what God says marriage is. That's honoring the marital relationship. So we want to honor, uh, or they're responding by um, right relationships. Number Category two here is rest. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy, uh, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, this is coming from Leviticus 25, but the big idea is this. Um, the Sabbath is, uh, is, is meant to uh, set apart the people of Israel, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. This was the thing that set them apart, to keep the Sabbath holy, to rest and not work, to trust in God's provision. And so they're saying, we're not going to engage in commerce. We're not going to try to make profit or money on this day. We're going to keep it holy. We're going to obey God. We're going to rest, now, this is like, this may feel restricting to some, but this is like God's grace to us to say, look, you can take a break. I am going to handle things. And in our country in particular, how many are feeling tired, overwhelmed, and busy because this is the spirit of the age? We got to keep going. We got to keep learning more. We got to keep climbing the ladder. We got to keep up to date. We got to keep up to date on our shows, on the news, on the information, on the political debates, on what's going on in the world. It's overwhelming today the amount of information that we have to consume. And it's dangerous. And I get, I get caught in that cycle. Anybody else? I don't know how I ended up watching 20 YouTube videos. I don't know how that happened, but somehow I ended up watching this one. I don't even know how I got there. But we could fall into this trap of just going and going and going and going and going. And then we wonder why we're exhausted, why our health is failing, why our relationships are poor. God's saying, rest, guys, take a day off. Trust me, I will take care of you. I will. You're never going to know that if you never stop working. When I was in seminary, I used to stress out about the tests. Not too much, but, you know, you guys, you all taking a test, right? Like, there's so much to study. You're never going to study it all. You can lose your mind trying to study it all. And I remember, like, getting wise and just saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to study, but would you just lead me to the right things to study? I'm only going to study for, like, three hours. And you know what? I passed all my tests, and it was fine. That was an act of repentance to say, I, I got to trust, I can't possibly study all this stuff. What is it for you in your life that is just more and more and more and more? It's like Proverbs says, the leech, they just, they just, they say give and give. It's never satisfied. This is the spirit of rage. You're never going to be satisfied. Not enough information, not enough entertainment, uh, not enough uh, pleasure-seeking addictions. It's never going to be enough. 
when we fall into this trap. And God's saying, just rest. Just spend time with me. You were made for me and I will fill your soul. So my rest is so important. And I'm guessing many of you struggle to rest. So we just keep talking about Sabbath. Just take a break. So this is important for God's people. It's important for us. Category three, resources. Verse 32, 33, tithing. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Remember that phrase? For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work of the house of our God. It goes on, verses 34 and 37, talks about giving the wood offering and giving the first fruits in verse 35 and the firstborn of our children and our animals and the first food of our dough and our contributions of the fruit in verse 37. Even the Levites themselves will tithe in verse 38. And all this is going to be gathered together in verse 39 gives us the main point of all this. We will not neglect the house of our God. We're not going to neglect God's ways and God's house. And again, in their day, that was the temple, the sacrificial system, all the offerings and all that stuff. You know who the house of God is today? It's you all. It's the church. We are the temple of God. That's why there's no temple today. The temple became a people and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so what does this mean for repentance for us? How are we using our resources to advance God's kingdom And we, we've heard these before, but your time, how you spend your time, how you spend your talent, your gifting, how God's made you, and how you spend your treasure, your finances, your investment. We're all investing these things in something. Is it God's ways for God's kingdom or is it for something else? You see, there's blessing in the one and there's natural consequences in the other, okay? So it's a call to Invest our resources. To not neglect the house of God is to invest in God's ways. Number four here, to relocate. Chapter 11 says this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the towns, in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property or in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's, and there's a whole bunch of list of names. I'll let you read that on your own in your own devotional time. What's the point? Some of them had to relocate. So it's a question of where are we going to live in God's ways? Some of them relocated to the city for, for the purpose of the holy city and building up Jerusalem. Most stayed out in the villages, but there was a commitment to build up Jerusalem. Now, by a real loose uh, application for our situation, we've been talking about emphasizing community discipleship as opposed to a Sunday worship gathering. Now, I want to do both of these things, but there's a, a culture we're trying to shift and a re-emphasis on the importance of living, say, out in the fields outside of Jerusalem. And so there's a certain number of people that need to help make something like a worship gathering happen. But more so, all of us need to be in our places where God has placed us, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, to be the kingdom of God out there. And that's really the shift we're trying to make. We believe in coming together under the teaching and worship, Jerusalem. But we need the kingdom of God exist 
outside of this hour every Sunday. Mostly that's where it exists. And so this is the call for us. Where are we going to invest? Where are we going to invest our time, our resources, our challenge? All right. I'm going to close this up. Here's the big idea. We've seen a confession of the Israelites and now the repentance and the ways that they've repented in these four categories. And we've said that repentance ultimately resides in the heart, that we want to rend our hearts rather than our garments and we want to turn our ways to God. And so we said that repentance begins with conviction. It leads to confession and results in returning to God and reinvesting in his ways, whether that's relationships, rest, resources, or relocation, uh, some categories of repentance. And so all I want to do now is simply pray for us again. I ask the worship team to come up and I'm going to pray for us and just give us another minute to sit before the Lord. Are there any categories in there that maybe God's calling you, inviting you to something better than you're doing? Your relationships, how are they? Especially your marriage relationship. Your rest, how's rest going? Actually, you get a whole minute to rest in here as we talk to the Lord. A whole minute, just a little taste. And, uh, and your resources. Does the Holy Spirit have anything to say to you about how you're spending your resources? And then finally, relocation. Is God calling you to step into leadership or a leadership team? Or is he asking you to move? Maybe he's asking you to move somewhere. I don't know. But I want to pray for us and let's just sit and wait on the Lord just for another minute and then I'll come back and we will move into a time of communion. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness towards us. And I do pray, Holy Spirit, that we would first and foremost think on who you are and remember that repentance is not based on who we are. It's based on who you are. And more importantly, how you feel about us. And so Holy Spirit, come and work in our hearts as we just sit before you. Come and minister now. We love you. We thank you for your word and your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.